is our invitation song tonight. And I appreciate Eric leading it. It's a song that as far as I know, he's never led. What will you do with Jesus? That is a question that pretty much everybody, those who are accountable, of accountable age obviously, all of them, who've ever lived over the past 2,000 years have had to answer, what will you do with Jesus? And everybody that is accountable has indeed answered that one way or the other. That's a question that I want to take a look at tonight, and I want to take a look at it by going back and examining 10 different perspectives and personalities that were present around the crucifixion account. Now, as we talk about 10 different perspectives or personalities that were present around the crucifixion account, obviously we only have time for just a little bit of information on each one. But as we do that, I want for us to consider how many of those same perspectives are around regarding Jesus and what people do with him and about him today, how many of those are still around and going just as strong as they were on that Friday. Also want for us to consider what we can learn from each one of these 10 that will help each one of us to become better, stronger, more faithful and devoted Christ-like Christians. And I say that that way because Christian means Christ-like or belonging to Christ, and I realize it's a little redundant, but again, I want to help us to become better, stronger, and more faithful and devoted Christians by looking at each of these, what we can learn from them. You can be opening your Bibles to Matthew 26. We won't get there on the first one, but if you want to open to Matthew 26, we'll get there on the second one. The first personality that I want to talk about that was present in the crucifixion narrative that I want to just briefly look at is Judas Iscariot. Judas spent three and a half years walking with Jesus or thereabouts. Approximately three and a half years walking, talking, and working with Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Three and a half years hearing the sermons, seeing the miracles, and experiencing firsthand everything that walking with our physical Lord on this earth would entail. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been something? Let me read the fact. Wouldn't you love to walk with Jesus? I mean literally walked, watched him raise the dead. Listen to him on the mountain that morning, or, or the mountain that day, doing the Sermon on the Mount, and, and what he had to say to people and, and how he handled those things. And, and Judas did that. Judas had known the sweet fellowship and the sweet friendship and the sweet communal working together for the greatest cause on earth. He had known not only about the greatest cause on earth and in working in fellowship and harmony and a communal effort with the disciples, but with Jesus Christ himself. And yet, the scripture tells us, shows us, that because of one single, solitary leadership decision that he disagreed with, Mark 14, verses 3 through 11, he went out and betrayed and sold out Jesus and the entire group. 
Now, Jesus was not, I'm sorry, Judas was not the only one that had reservations about that leadership decision. Mark chapter 14, verses 4 and 5. He was not the only one who had reservations about that decision, but he was the only one who let his anger get the best of him and lead him away to eternal destruction. The second group in the crucifixion narrative that I'd like for us to think about is the denominational religious leaders of Jesus' day. The elders, chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees. Now, you might not have ever thought of them as denominational religious leaders, but that's exactly what they were. They, they did not agree on everything. They were divided. They were denominated, as it were. We see that they did not always agree nor teach the same doctrines among themselves. In fact, there were sharp, divisive disagreements between them. Acts chapter 23, verses 7 through 10 says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Again, Acts 23 and verse 8. They were divided into sects, into groups. They were denominated into divisions. They were the denominational leaders of Jesus' day. And the thing is, though, is that while they had many denominations or divisions among themselves, such as we just read about or, or looked at in Acts 23 and verse 8, they would unite together against a common enemy. Common enemy like the truth of God that would expose them all in their false doctrines once and forever. And indeed, that is just what they did. They, they spared no effort. They spared no expense and they spared no argument, uniting against their common enemy, Jesus. We, we see this in Matthew chapter 26, as they even went to the point of purposefully seeking people to lie about Jesus and his teachings in verses 59 through 61. It says they are now the chief priests, Matthew 26, 59. The elders and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Now, we know that they took what Jesus said and completely twisted and perverted it in order to lie about it. But as we consider that, I can't help but think of all of the divided and denominated religious groups around us today they may be divided and denominated and teach different doctrines and go by different names, but they will sometimes unite against a common enemy, a common enemy like the truth of God when it comes to the one church, a common enemy like the truth of God when it comes to the essentiality of baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Even though they are divided in some of their own doctrines, they will unite together against some of those commandments found in God and his word. The third personality I want for us to look at is found in the person of Barabbas. We see his story in Matthew 27. Please turn there. In Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. 
Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him, that is Jesus, over because of envy. Notice in verse 16 that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. He had a reputation. Luke 23 and verse 19 tells us that he had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. Barabbas was a murderer. Barabbas was on death row. Barabbas was awaiting crucifixion. Consider Barabbas for a moment. We, we don't know, and I've hunted and hunted and hunted for even a historical account about what happened to Barabbas, and I couldn't find one, so we don't know beyond this text what happened to Barabbas. But what I want you to think about is this. He's on death row. He's going to be crucified. He's a murderer. The Romans had him. And that Friday morning, when the guards came to get Barabbas, wonder what was going through his head. Is today the day? Maybe he knew. Maybe those, one of those three crosses was him. I don't know. But I know that he was in prison for murder. And so the guards come and they get you and they pull you out and you brought up before Pilate with Jesus and Pilate says, who do you want me to release? And they say, Barabbas. I can't begin to fathom what must have gone through Barabbas' mind when they said to him, who was sentenced to die, you're free. Go. Did Barabbas go back to his life of crime or did that have an impact on him where he changed his life? I don't know. If we consider that maybe he went back to his life of crime, back to what got him imprisoned in the first place, wouldn't that be a terrible waste? That would be awful, wouldn't it? Set free, you got a fresh start, you, you, you're off death row, and here you go, and, and all of a sudden, you got, you got a chance right now. You've got to make a choice. What a shame it would be to go back to that life of crime and wind up right back in that same place six months, a year, two years down the road and wind up dying anyway. What, what a shame. And yet, as I think about that, obviously, you're probably way ahead of me here, but obviously, it would be an even worse crime or a or, or, or most terrible thing for somebody to, to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to, to have their sins all washed away, to be, to be taken off of death row, to have eternal life. Six months down the road, they go back to their life of sin. They go back to the very entanglements that had them before. And they walk away from Christ and his church freedom. They walk away from making the changes that they needed to make and they just become prisoner again and cast into eternal hell. The fourth personality group which is conveniently located right there in the next verse, verse 19, is Mr. and Mrs. Pilate. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife sent him a note and said, Don't have anything to do with him. Now, Pilate's wife knew Pilate's position. She, she understood what his position entailed. But you see, Pilate's wife was willing to go all in. Don't do anything. Don't have anything to do with him. Don't, don't. I've suffered much in a dream. See, here we have a, a marriage 
where one is all in, but the other was trying to find a way to please everybody and make the whole thing somehow work. You see, he wasn't as all in as she was. And we know what happened to Pilate. And one commentator I read said, through her, God gave Pilate a chance to do the right thing. Pilate ignored it. In a previous place where I was, in a previous place where I was employed as their full-time preacher, we had a couple of ladies. One of them was, I believe, late 70s, early 80s. And one of them was, I'm terrible with ladies' ages, probably 60-ish. And both of them had married men that were not Christians as teenagers. They were both Christians as teenagers. And one of those ladies, around 80 years old, who had married a, a non-Christian, she died. It, she died while I was there as a full-time preacher, and her husband never came around. I don't know how many decades that she struggled with that and sought to try to get him to come around, but he didn't. And in the other case, after we left that place, the husband, who was not a Christian, passed away. And his wife, who has been a faithful Christian for decades, was still alive. They weren't on the same page, and I, I just, I almost cringe to think of this man who all his life was married to this faithful Christian lady, but never obeyed the gospel. Not being on the same page, that's tough. The fifth personality involved in the crucifixion account that I'd like for us to take a look at is Simon of Cyrene. The scriptures tell us about Simon in Matthew 27 and verse 32, Mark 15, 21, and Luke 23, 26, and, and how he was coming in from the country that morning. He's coming in from the country, and here's Jesus staggering under his cross, Jesus going down, and, and they compel him to have the, watch this word, privilege, the privilege, the honor of carrying Jesus' cross for him. Can you imagine a greater honor or privilege than carrying Christ's cross for him that morning? Let that sink in. Christ, who had done so much for so many, for so long, was going to die to set us free. He's, he's so beaten up, so bloodied, so bruised, so battered, he can't carry his own cross. And they compel Simon to take it, and, and Simon gets to carry Christ's cross. For him. We, we love Jesus, obviously, we're here. And we want to do things for Jesus. What a, what a privilege to carry his cross. It's too bad that only one person that's ever lived had that opportunity what a privilege that would be. Newsflash, we have the opportunity to carry his cross too. There's not just one person. You see, the scriptures tell us in Galatians 6 and verse 2 that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. In Matthew 25 in verse 40, look what it says. 
And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Jesus said, whenever you do these things for the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens. Do we understand that when we help a brother or sister carry their cross, we are helping to carry the cross of Christ? Because Christ said, if you're doing it for them, you're doing it for my people, you're doing it for me. See, we still have the privilege of carrying the cross of Christ when we help one another bear our burdens. And we all need help bearing our burdens. There's a lot of opportunities to carry the cross of Christ for him in that sense. The sixth personality group would be the crowds. The multitudes. The multitudes that the chief priests and elders persuaded to ask for Barabbas in order to ensure the destruction of Jesus in verse 20. Or those who passed by and simply repeated the lies and false charges his enemies had told so often and so loudly that they were just accepted as truth in Matthew 27, verses 39 and 40. Look what it says. The crowds or the multitudes in either place are the ones I'm talking about. Matthew 27, verse 39 says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Listen, don't, don't miss the connection. That's the very false statement, the false testimony that they had come up with that we read about earlier in Matthew 26. This crowd, these passers-by, were simply repeating the false charge that was already drummed up and had been circulated among the crowd. This wasn't a, a real charge. This wasn't something that these crowds had seen for themselves. They're just repeating the lie. You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. The majority of the people in these crowds all suffered from the same soul-damning problem. And that problem was they simply accepted the lies and the falsehoods that these religious leaders were spewing and that everybody else was just mindlessly accepting and repeating with no thought of investigation, with no thought of getting into whether or not they were true or right or wrong. These people were just following what they'd heard and repeating the lie. It is amazing what a crowd will do. It has been said, spoken of, of a man who many years ago read an article to this effect on a busy street corner in a city. He begins looking down. And there's crowds around. And so, what do you do when somebody's in your immediate company and they're, well, most people, what's he looking? And they start looking. And you get two or three doing it, and then what happens? You get eight or ten doing it. You get eight or ten doing it, you get 20, 50, 60 people all doing it. And nobody has any clue why they're doing it. They're just doing it because somebody started it. And then the guy that started it all walks away, stands over here and kind of chuckles because nobody has a clue why they're looking on the ground. 
This crowd was like that. They just simply mindlessly repeated the charges that were false, but they didn't bother to check into them. It's, it's the same idea. You sit in a, a crowded auditorium in a, in a show or something, and you begin looking up at the ceiling, and you begin just maybe kind of doing this. And you know what's going to happen to the people behind you, don't you? Everybody's going to start. You know what's going to happen to the people behind them? You know what's going to happen for a long You're going to have a whole section of people going. They have no idea what they're looking for. They have no clue why they're looking. But everybody's doing it. That's what happened here. Ironically, before I move on, listen, we have got to be a people that defends what we believe because we know what we believe because we know exactly why we believe it. We can't be a people that are just looking on the ground because everybody else is. We can't be a people that's just saying things because everybody else is saying it. We can't be a people that's just looking up at the rafters because everybody else is. We have to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we need to know the why we believe it is because we've studied it in God's word and we know that it's true. We need to be a people who has sought it, studied it, seen it, and experienced the truth of God in action for ourselves. Not just mindlessly staring, having no idea what we're looking for. Not just following the crowd. Number seven. Ironically, it is within that same crowd that we see a couple of really tiny examples of our seventh personality group present at the cross. Those who, in contrast to the vast majority of those around them, actually stopped. They stopped looking down or they stopped looking up. In this case, they stopped and they looked, they observed and thought for themselves. The seventh personality group is those who stop to take the time and put in the effort to objectively observe and think for themselves, come to their own conclusions instead of just blindly going along with the crowd. And listen, these two little small samples could not have come from any more opposite groups within that crowd. One group was the two that were crucified with him, and the other group was just a handful of the Roman soldiers. The crucifiers and the crucified, within those groups, there were actually some who stopped and thought for themselves that really took the time to observe. For example, keep your finger here in, in Matthew 27, but turn with me to Luke 23. We'll come right back, I promise. Luke 23. Beginning at verse 39. And one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now both these criminals have done the same thing. They've heard what the crowds are saying. They've heard what the Romans are saying. They've heard what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees are saying. They've heard what the council is saying. They've heard what the passers-by are saying. And one of them gets caught up in that. He just, yeah, if you, come on down if you're the Christ. Because they've said, you know, if you're the Christ, come on down. And he just, he's charger up and he's going along with them. But the other one, the other one started out condemning Christ, just like everybody else in the crowd. But somewhere along the line, this second thief took the time to think for himself. This, to, to not step back because he was on a cross, obviously, but to really objectively look at Jesus, to, to watch how Jesus handled this. Somewhere within that six-hour ordeal, the other two, two of the other gospel writers tell us that both of them blasphemed him, but, but that second one took a minute. I don't know what went through his head. I don't know what he was thinking, but he, he really stopped to take a minute and look at Jesus and, and really think for himself. 
But the other, verse 40 of Luke 23, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? For we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, please remember me. Somewhere along the line, bleeding, dying, suffering many of the same things that, that Jesus did physically, this man took a minute to stop and really look at what was going on as opposed to what everybody was saying. And that day he was with Jesus in paradise. Now back in Matthew 27, we see that not only amongst that small sample group of the, the two robbers, but amongst the small sample group of the Roman soldiers in Matthew chapter 27 in verse 54, we see again, so the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that happened. They feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. They, they thought about what they saw. They processed it. They didn't just continue to buy into the lines. I mean, it took a lot with the soldiers, I, granted. It took, you know, six hours, but they still heard everything that was being said. They, they, they knew. But when they took a minute and they looked around, thought about really what they saw, and what was going on? I said, truly this man was the son of God. They observed and thought for themselves. They are the seventh personality group. The eighth group present at the cross is in Matthew 27, verses 55 and 6. It's a group that, simply put, it's the women. It's the women. Said it many times, so I won't take a lot of time to say it. But it is typically women that respond to the gospel quicker. It is typically women that stay with the gospel and stay faithful longer. It is typically women that respond more intensely. More often than not, it is women who are the first ones to put it all on the line, the first ones to step up when there is a job to be done, and the first ones to respond and stay faithful to the gospel of our Lord and Savior. As I've said of the congregations I've served, in most of them it's about 75% women that uh, were Christians before their husbands or led their husbands to the Lord, and about 25% men to their wives. And hence, these women are, are still there, and God often reward, rewarded their faith first. The first individual to see the resurrected Lord was a woman, Mary Magdalene, John 16, 9 and 10. The first, not only individual, to see the resurrected Lord was a woman. The first group of people to see the resurrected Lord was a group of women, Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. The first to respond to the gospel and be converted in Europe was a woman as well. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15. The women were there and faithful at the end. As to our ninth personality group, while some of Christ's male disciples are indeed mentioned along with these women in Matthew 27, verses 55 and 6, just as you can read, they're mentioned but it wasn't because they were there. In fact, most of his disciples were nowhere to be seen. Most of his disciples were nowhere to be seen during our Lord's darkest hour. During the time when Jesus could have used a friend the most, 
Most of those that he had walked with, talked with, taught, protected, over three and a half years, were nowhere to be seen when he needed them most. When he struggled the hardest, they weren't there. The one time when he was at his absolute lowest, when he could have used their love and support the most, they were AWOL. Not only were they AWOL, but one of them had denied him with a curse. You know, young people in school, older people at work, all of us together in the church, it is easy to publicly express your love and your support and your friendship for a brother or sister when everything's going well and everything's popular. When they're popular, you are when everything's going well. But what about when they're really struggling? What about when the world turns on them? That's what happened to Jesus. What about when they are damaged goods? What about when standing with them and being there for them would put you in danger? Put you in danger of losing maybe your own reputation, your social standing, your friends, or even life itself. There's an old saying that goes something along the lines of when you're down, you find out who your friends are. God said it in Proverbs 17, 17 this way. A friend loves at all times. All times. The tenth and final personality of the cross I would like for us to take a look at tonight is Joseph of Arimathea. The scriptures tell us that he was a rich man who had become a disciple of Christ, Matthew 27 and verse 57. The scriptures tell us that he was not only a council member, but a prominent council member who had not consented to their decision to kill Jesus, Mark 15 and verse 43, Luke 23 and verse 51. The scriptures tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews, but who took courage and came to Pilate to ask for the body of Christ nonetheless, Mark 15, 43 and John 19, 38. And Joseph of Arimathea, whom after having received that body of Christ spared no effort, no expense, not even his own personal safety to honor the Lord. And so wrapping all of this up, what we learn from him, from Joseph of Arimathea, as well as with the Apostle Peter and his peers, as well as the two thieves on the crosses, as well as Pilate and his wife and the women at the cross and so many others like Nicodemus, for example, what we learn from all of them is this. No matter who we are, no matter who or where you are, physically, spiritually, there always comes a time when you are going to have to take a stand one way or the other. 
There always comes a time when you are going to have to take a stand. You are either going to have to declare your faith in Jesus Christ and put it all out there on the line, or you can stay silent, remain in the shadows, and not live your life for Jesus. That choice and that crossroads comes to everybody at some point. Joseph of Arimathea and all of these others made that choice, just like many of the Jewish leadership also made that choice according to John 12. Turn with me to John 12. He was a prominent council member, but some of the other leaders of the Jews, <laughs> they were not ready to, to, to take that stand when the time came. John chapter 12, verse 42, it says, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. There came a time they had to decide. It happens to everybody. We move on, verse 44 of John 12. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe him, do, does not believe, I do not judge him, for I didn't come in to judge the world, but to save the world. That was that time. He who rejects me and does not receive my words, Jesus said, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say, what I should speak. And I know his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. Jesus said, you reject my words, you reject me. You reject me in my words, come judgment day, God's going to reject you, if I may paraphrase. Everybody's got to make a choice. Nobody escapes it. I'm also reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew 10 when he said, whoever confesses me before men, him I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verses 33, 32 and 3 of Matthew 10. And then he goes on to say in verses 37 through 39, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Everybody has to decide what will they do with Jesus. There's no escaping it. Tonight we have looked at 10 character groups or traits or personalities. 10 character groups or traits or personal perspectives that we can all take and learn something from in order to, in order to I can say this, improve our own faithfulness and fidelity to the Lord. Surely there is something in one of those 10 groups that can make us a better Christian. 10 character groups, traits, or personalities. 
that we can use to improve our relationship with God and with one another. So, where do you fit into that scene? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The title of the song says and the question I asked tonight. And if you were there, which one of these groups was it in? What kind of changes do you need to make tonight? What will you do with Jesus and his cross? Tonight, tomorrow, and in the days and weeks and months and situations yet to come, it all starts when we decide to put everything else aside, be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins to wash those sins away. And it continues on from there. What will you do with Jesus tonight if you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? What will you do with Jesus tomorrow when the going gets rough? What will you do? Do you need the prayers of the church tonight to do more of the right thing? Please decide what you're going to do with Jesus as we stand and sing the invitation song.